Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Happy Friday. Molly here. In today's episode, Vera interviews Dr. Sarah Zaldivar. Before we get to the interview, I just really wanted to take a quick moment and get a little vulnerable with you. So in this interview, Dr. Sarah Zaldivar is a carnivore. She is a dietitian. And during the course of her conversation with Vera, I found myself having feelings that were conflicting. I started to feel guilty even that I eat vegetables at times. And so I just wanted to take this moment, not only to be vulnerable about my reaction or response to some of the topics that were talked about, but just a reminder that if you're doing something that's working for you, it's not wrong. And your data is always going to be more important than somebody else's dogma. So keep in mind as you're listening to this interview that Sarah is a carnivore. She believes in carnivore. She believes in a very specific definition of carnivore and the clients that she works with follow her program and that's all well and good for them. And if that's something that works for you, then I am so happy for you. And if it's not something that works for you, this may not be the episode for you or go ahead and listen, but please listen with a grain of salt. So in this episode, what you are going to hear is uh, about Sarah's personal and professional story. How did she end up in the carnivore world? How Sarah accepted sugar and food addiction as real, Um, how she survives teaching in the field of dietetics. If her experience is that no one achieves their goals by working with a dietitian, Uh, Sarah's program, uh, research on species-specific diet for humans. Uh, She talks about dairy and healing dopamine receptors. They talk about exercise, cholesterol, fiber, cancer, intermittent fasting, how carnivore is not a weight loss diet. They talk about volume addiction, a typical day of eating in the life of a carnivore. And Sarah answers our signature question. Take it away, Vera. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, speaking with a carnivore dietitian who lives the sugar-free life, Dr. Sarah Zoldivar. Sarah got her master's degree in nutrition and dietetics and her doctorate in exercise physiology and nutrition from the University of Miami. She is currently a nutritional professor at Miami Dade College and a full-time content creator at YouTube, Instagram, and other platforms. She is also a certified personal trainer and certified exercise physiologist with the American College of Sports Medicine. Every month, she selects a few individuals to coach diet, exercise, and mindset programs. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Vera, for having me. 
Yes, good, excellent. So um, I'm very, I'm really looking forward to asking you all sorts of questions about uh, the carnivore diet and also your place in the world, uh, because it's not widely acceptable except in a small niche of people. If you don't mind, let's start with the personal story: how you got into nutrition and dietetics, and then how you landed on the carnivore platform. Ooh, okay. I've always struggled with weight issues ever since I was 12, and a classmate of mine casually mentioned that. Oh, I was fat. <laughs> so I was traumatized from a very young age. And that's what um, led me to a lot of binge eating behaviors, restrict binge cycles. And it culminated at the age of 18 of me gaining a lot of weight. I, I reached a little over 60 kilos. Um, I don't know the conversion of pounds because back then I was still living in Lebanon. And so we had the metric system. And then that pushed me um, to uh, explore becoming a dietitian because in my 17, 18 year old brain, it's like, there's no dietitian that's overweight, right? And of course, um, my professor, who I absolutely love and adore, um, the first day of class, she wasn't. She was like very overweight. You know, if you want to use the technical scientific term, you would say it is obesity class one, two, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, so that very quickly bursted my bubble. Bursted. I don't know if that's a word. It burst my bubble. And uh, that. Uh, but but I stayed in the program. I became a dietitian, and uh, you know, did my master's in nutrition and dietetics you know, and all that kind of stuff. However, throughout the whole journey, I would try to follow what they're telling us, you know, I'll eat all the carbs. And uh, I, that definitely did not work. And I was having acne. And the reason why eventually I started breaking away from the mainstream advice and starting losing faith in authority figures and diet, official dietary guidelines or any kind of official guideline really is because I did everything under the sun for my acne and nothing worked. Accutane twice, spironolactone for two years, birth control pills, antibiotics, everything, lotions, everything. And uh, that's when I started doing my own research. And the first break from the mainstream was when I read Dr. Lauren Cordain's book, The Acne Cure. And it was all about the paleo diet and how hunter-gatherer societies really, and I would, I have, I'm not so sure if we really were gatherer societies. I think we were more mostly hunters, but you know, let's just say hunter-gatherer societies did not have any acne, even their teenagers, when you have the highest levels of insulin, um, you also never saw acne in them. And uh, I don't think he ever mentions the word paleo in that book, but it was all about eliminating grains, beans, and dairy. And guess what? (laughs) Within one month, my skin was clear, something that all the other drugs I mentioned were never able to do. And so that was my first break. And I understood, okay, so paleo is the way to go, but I was still doing a lot of fruits, you know? So actually my skin didn't really clear up as much as, uh, until I did carnivore eventually. And I realized like all that fruit wasn't helpful. And then from there, you know, I started having a lot of anxiety when I moved from Lebanon to Miami, the university of Miami as a doctoral student, they put you right into like, you start teaching, you know, 20 year olds, 23 year olds. And I had even older kids. And I mean, I, I was 25 when I started teaching. So I had a lot of anxiety and I started Googling diets um, for that. And Dr. David Perlmutter's website shows up and talks about how important eating a high fat diet is for your brain health and removing carbs. And so I did that. And then within literally seven days, it was like a 
flip switched on in my brain. Like I, like I didn't even realize I had brain fog until it went away. So that's when I started uh, realizing, wait, keto is the, like, I feel amazing on this thing. Like you get hooked very quickly once you feel it, the positive effects. And um, so, yeah, I started doing keto and then I realized it's also beneficial for body composition. And then eventually found carnivore because I was still having a massive sugar addiction, you know, like you do keto, but you also do keto treats. You know, you don't understand that sugar, the sweet taste, right? is far more addictive than heroin. Uh, I mean, it just blows my mind when I read those studies and when I share those studies with my clients and everybody, it's wow. So um, that's when um, I, every time I would have a binge or something like that, I would be educating myself. Like after every binge, I felt like I had to do something so that I would feel less miserable afterwards. So I would go purchase books, listen to interviews, podcasts. And this is how I discovered Dr. Sean Baker, Andrew Rogan, Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson, a lot of Joe Rogan's podcast, I would have to say. And then I bought the book by Dr. Stephen Gundry, you know, the plant paradox talking about lectins and the plant cell defense uh, chemicals and how, I mean, throughout decades of academic work and experience in nutrition and exercise physiology, not once did anybody ever mention any downside to eating plants. And then here is this highly referenced book by Dr. Stephen Gundry, the sheer amount of studies that have been done on toxicology of plants. It's like, why aren't we taught this stuff? Like at least mention it, you know? Yeah. It's mind blowing, right? Yeah. Let me just stop you there for a second. Cause I want to back up on some of the things that you've said. So you mentioned that you were uh, 60 kilos, which I think is around 140 pounds, something like that something like that and nobody can see you but 132 you... pounds oh okay all right anyway you, yeah. your weight is perfect and i don't see a spot of acne on your face so uh, just just for people who can't see you it, it definitely what you're saying you have sort right. of that that issue for sure so when you did the study i would imagine that and there you were discovering you had a sugar addiction you were also in the dietetic world which is uh very much uh, focused on eating disorders it went, it went, the, the, the term sugar addiction doesn't exist in that world so how did you break free from that mindset along with uh, all everything else that they were teaching you to actually use that term food addiction you know about the milgram experiments how 80% of people will follow authority and orders no matter what, even if it's very clearly the wrong thing to do and against their values. People should look it up. It's wild when you see how people can be driven and just can be become followers so easily, can be manipulated so easily. So, so Lisa, just for people who don't know, that's the experiment where people were asked to zap people to pain just because they felt that they, they were told to by authority. It's exactly. Very well-known study i think in the 70s something like that yeah yeah wow. i'm not sure yeah sometime around that and uh they kept increasing the dose of the electrocution to yeah. the point where had those electric shocks been real the the people would have died right and you so know you're, you're making an equivalency with uh what how, what we're teaching our our patients exactly so I've always known there was something different about me growing up. I've always been critical and didn't follow authority or believe it blindly. 
um, from a very from as long as I can remember. So I think maybe that was why when I obviously the experiences also that I've gone through all those things together made me see the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics for what it really is. It literally just being in bed with the food companies, um, working hand in hand, investing in those food companies that keep creating more and more addictive versions of their processed foods. And can I jump in and yeah. negating the research like about vegetables that you were just talking about or plant, plant-based right. And it took me a long time to get all the pieces together, but I think that final nail in the coffin was understanding the history of the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, how it was started by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Literally, this lady, Ellen G. White, claimed to have visions from God, and everybody believed her and followed what she said. And uh, one of the things she proposed was that a vegetarian diet is the way to go, and it's, it's the best because really the reality was that she didn't want to see animals being heard. I can, I can obviously empathize with that, right? But now we know that actually a plant-based diet kills 25 times more sentient or emotion-feeling animals in a much more brutal way than... And that's uh, in that Plant Paradox book. People, you've got to read that book. Yeah. Oh my you. gosh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yes. Isn't it wild that he still recommends those plants? Yeah. It's like, I need to have a little chat with Dr. Gundry. <laughs> So anyway, so understanding all of those things made me lose all respect for the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics. As it stands right now, knowing everything we know with regards to the addiction research coming out, it is criminal what the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is doing. Why are they silent? on all of this addictive research. Why are they still working with those companies? You go to the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics conference every year. It's like a showcase for all the junk food and sugar companies. Not only that, they actually come up and present to the registered dietitians to give them continuing education credits. Really? Representatives for those food companies are providing the continuing education credits to our registered dietitians? I mean, Wow. I've never heard of somebody going to a registered dietitian and finally having real success, really losing the weight and maintaining. I've never heard of anybody. So given that it's the wrong advice, how are you, how are you able to survive working in that field and in fact teaching in that field? I think Miami-Dade College don't know. <laughs> do it. And honestly, I really should quit. I mean, I my income is thankfully finally is like catapulted itself in the past um i would say half a year to the point where i just make way more um with my coaching business and my youtube and my brand what can they do i you know i'm not an, an employee if i were to go and become an employee at a hospital then ooh, it's ill gonna it's gonna be a problem right mm. but obviously i would never do that you know what about your teaching do you actually talk about the stuff that we're talking about right, right now oh yeah that's the only reason I'm hanging in there for a few more weeks. Yeah. If it weren't for that, like, yeah, I would, I would definitely not be there. Yeah. I, uh, I recorded the basic nutrition. I mean, obviously basics are basics. You know, you have carbs, proteins, fats, vitamins, but like there are some basics that don't change. Fine. I've recorded those lectures. They watch them over the weekend. And then when we meet a couple of days a week, all we do is Q and A and discussion. And so it's all about, and I give them a lot of homework. So they have to watch documentaries on the carnivore diet. They have to uh, watch a lot of, uh, yeah, because it's just so opposite to what the mainstream is that, you know, 
so that they don't think I'm crazy. <laughs> they have to be educated. And so there are certain really important pieces of the puzzle, the history of the American Heart Association and how Procter and Gamble literally put them on the map by giving them millions of dollars to start promoting their seed oils, right? And the history of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, how it was co-founded by one of those early Seventh-day Adventist adherents, you know, who was just brainwashed to believe that a vegetarian diet is going to get you closer to God because it's going to prevent you from masturbating. And it's true because plant foods suppress your sex hormones with libido's gone. <laughs> so yeah, you're not going to masturbate, right? So understanding those things, understanding that we are a hyper-carnivore species that derived over, way over 70% of our calories from pure animal meat. All those things they need to understand. So they wash those. And so when we get together, we talk about them and everybody gets excited and they start trying a carnivore diet and start getting the success stories and their psoriasis is gone and they're losing weight and they're not depressed and they don't have anxiety anymore. So it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. But so before we uh, close off that part, so are you out as a carnivore in your institution? The pandemic hit. We, we right away transitioned to online teaching. And then, so I started teaching online around 2020. And that's when we also left Miami, bought a house in Ocala. So I've been teaching online ever since. And so I don't see anybody in the department. Right. And they never, and they're just happy because I have the highest ratings on rate my professors. Like I, I get them the most amount of students compared to all the different campuses. They have tons of campuses in Miami-Dade College. Yeah. My class, the people are dying to get in. The wait list is always full. So so it sounds to me like you're 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 gonna leave that world behind and you're essentially taking your teaching skills onto the uh, YouTube and uh, the social media platform. That's yeah. what I've been doing and it's just yeah. getting better and better. We're growing and the message is getting out there. We're impacting people and it's it's I'm happy. <laughs> Uh, I, I was going to ask that a bit later, but why don't you tell us what is your program? What is it that you envision yourself doing in on the social media platform? And I know you're doing some work one-on-one uh, -on -one with people. So just tell us what you're doing. Yeah, I uh, do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I also started doing group coaching a couple of months ago, which I'm very excited to grow that part of the brand as well, because I can impact just a lot more people in that one hour that I'm present. The goal is, I, I know that my method where I have gotten with the results with my clients, this has the potential to become a billion dollar fitness brand. So that is the goal to get there as quickly as possible. I think any species that reverts back to its species appropriate diet is going to get much better skin, health, uh, body composition. Everything is going to get better. I'm actually transitioning my dog to a carnivore diet too right oh. now. He's getting really old and, uh, and finally my finances <laughs> are, are matching my ambitions, you know? Not not really, like my ambition is way higher, but you know what I mean? I can finally afford to do like an all meat, high quality diet for him. So yeah, a species specific diet is the best diet. And that is the only diet that has zero addiction potential. Actually, I was going to get to that. So clearly you believe that human beings, our species specific diet is carnivore. So what? tell us a little bit about the research that you have on that. And then, yes, I would like to know if food addiction, if, if that is the ultimate solution for food addiction. It is the ultimate solution, of course, because especially when you take out the dairy, because remember dairy has casein in it, especially cheese, which turns into casomorphin, which activates our opioid receptor 
receptors in our brain, right? So you remove dairy, all of a sudden there's no more addictive potential. There's no, there's no fruits or vegetables even, because if you remember evolutionarily speaking for 99.99% of our existence as a species here on earth, we evolved during an ice age. Do we really have plants mm. and vegetation? It's not like a tropical forest, right? During an ice age, there is no plant food. So we evolved hunting animals and subsisting on animal protein and animal fat, right? Even the fruits that we have nowadays, those are franken fruits. They never even existed three, more than 300 years ago. It's only in the last 300 years ago that we've started hybridizing those seeds so that now instead of having what we used to have, which was like, like a crab apple, which was literally like two inches in diameter max, most of them were bitter or toxic and they had only four grams of sugar. Now you have 25 grams of sugar in an apple and you think, oh, this is healthy. It's like, you know, this never existed historically. Every single plant food you can think of on the planet before you ingest it. I'm going to give you an exercise. Go to Google and search for the wild version of that plant food. Sweet mm. potatoes. Potatoes were like this size, most of them bitter or toxic. And most plant foods are an inedible, even the ones that we're eating nowadays. Broccoli, cauliflower, they've only been hybridized in the past, what, I think in the like 1700s, 1800s. They all are derivatives of the toxic mustard seed, uh, mustard plant. There is a reason why it is a legal to sell mustard oil because it's so toxic, so high in erucic acid, right? Mm -hmm. But yet we, we've hybridized it and we've made the broccoli and cauliflower and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's this healthy food. It's like, oh really? How come we survived and we actually were far more resilient? We were taller, had bigger brains, thicker bones, no heart disease, no cancer. Historically speaking, when we had zero broccoli and all the meats. Can I just ask you a question? I, I have to admit, I'm a fan of cauliflower. So I so from what you've said, are you saying that one version of mustard is mustard gas, right? Which was, yeah. was you know, used in World War II. And are you saying that cauliflower and broccoli come from the mustard seed, which is like a cousin of mustard gas? Are we talking the same language here? I think mustard gas comes from the mustard plant. I'm not a thousand percent sure, okay. but I think so. That's amazing. Right? Yeah, they all have erucic acid in them. It's highly toxic, even at low concentrations. They lead to cancers and rats, right? And so this is what you're eating, low dose of poison over a long period of time, you know? Cauliflower, I used to do all the cauliflower rice. Yeah, it's it's car At the end of the day, it's still carbs. It kind of mimics regular rice. You add some olive oil in it. Oh my gosh, it's so good, right? Yeah. But if we really want to optimize, you know, it's best to remove that bok choy, Brussels sprouts, all of those are derivative of the same plan that never existed. We created it, basically. Uh, okay, so so you're saying that we are... But what about the fact that while those plants have evolved, so have our bodies evolved? And so is it fair to say that a carnivore diet that, that you're trying to mimic from, I don't know what period of time you're talking about, but we're not those creatures anymore that relied on that? What do you say to that? So evolution takes a long period of time, right? How does evolution work? And this is something, another wild thing that I've noticed. Students don't know how to describe evolution. Like 18, 19 year olds, they no longer, if you ask them, how does evolution work? They don't know how to answer that question. This is something that's starting to really alarm me. But anyway, how does evolution work? Basically the folks or the, the people that cannot handle, let's say, anything new in the environment, they either die off 
or they are so unhealthy they can't reproduce. And so they're gene right. style, right? Yes. And so it takes a very long time for the resilient people who are adaptable to their environment to pass on those adaptable genes to the progeny, right? So it takes a very long time for evolution to work its magic. If we look at the skeletons of humans, homo sapiens, before the agricultural revolution, which happened 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, versus our skeletons afterwards, <laughs> you can see a very sharp decline in our health, right? So before the agricultural revolution, we ate a carnivore diet. And then something happened. It seems that it was a mix of overhunting the animals, plus the climate changing, all those things like to the extinction of those woolly mammoths and large animals we used to hunt. All of a sudden, it was like, are we going to starve to death or are we going to adapt and just make do with what we can and this is what we did we started eating plants um, it was better than, huh? yeah, the agricultural revolution exactly it yeah. was better than starving to death okay but what happened is that you can very clearly see in every pocket of the world where they made that transition from carnivore to plant-based Every single instance, it's like clockwork, the same thing happened. We got shorter, our brain size started shrinking, even though our brain sizes were exponentially growing, especially after we started eating meat, it started growing. And then when we could learn to cook meat, it went up exponentially. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in history, it started shrinking back down again. And that led to our skulls shrinking back again. And so we, our jaws were smaller. And that, for the first time in history, we started seeing misalignment of the teeth mm -hmm. because we didn't have enough space in our jaws for all the teeth to fit in. And our bones became brittle and more rickety. And so we paid a very heavy cost with our health. But we made that trade-off because it was better than going extinct as a species. But you and I are in you know 2023. We've survived that. We, we're the... Uh, the survivors. So why can't we eat the carbs that we survived on? Why do we need to go back? I mean, this is just a devil's advocate question. You know, I'm, I love it. Yeah. But why, why do we have to go back to that initial one since we've obviously survived this change? Because there's a difference between surviving and thriving, ah, right? Good. So do you want to survive? You can, you know, just like my dog survived for 12, 13 years on kibble. But he would have, you know, he was able to thrive had I given him a carnivore diet from the get-go, okay. right? Same thing. It's up to you. You can choose to survive or you can choose to thrive and live an extra 50 years, maybe. I don't know how much longer we can live when we go back to our species-specific diet, you know? Okay. Now, so so what about some of the questions? Well, first of all, actually, you were going to say something about food addiction. Is it possible, obviously, if we're not eating uh, carbohydrates, which tend to be very addictive, that's out of the picture because that's that's plant-based, the carbs. But what about, you mentioned, if you think about a carnivore diet, I actually think about cheese as part of that, and you've knocked that one off. So yeah. I, I'd be interested in, uh, is a true carnivore diet like a non-dairy diet? Yes. 1,000%. meant uh, anything to do with the plant, including the dairy. That's what most people think. The pe Different people come up with different definitions. And sometimes it's like when you have a very in, um, popular carnivore influencer and they say a carnivore diet also includes fruits and honey. You know, they, uh -huh. like, they, they've developed their definition of a carnivore. My yeah. definition of a carnivore diet is just meat. No coffee, no plant food, no dairy. Wow. Not even coffee. Well, yeah. 
You've got not in my jaw open there, okay? As I hold my coffee cup in my hand. Oh, sorry. So I so you mentioned there's the casein in uh, cheese that's addictive. So a pure carnivore diet that you're proposing is there anything addictive? Can meat be addictive? No, impossible. What about fats? People say that fats are addictive. If you're not eating them with protein, like a stick of butter, pure yeah. fat, yes. A calor any kind of calorically dense food is addictive, but that never existed in nature. You have to process it. Right. It always came with the protein. Like, yeah. Exactly. So it offsets that hit to your brain with regards to the concentration of the fat. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so that's why a fat, like a stick of butter, can be addictive. But if you stick it with, well, actually, you couldn't because that comes from milk, which is dairy, right? Yeah. Preferably not, and I wouldn't recommend it. This is not to say that people aren't getting massive results while still having coffee, while still having some butter, even some cheese. All of these are leaps and bounds better than any form of carbohydrate you would have otherwise consumed, you know? So, yeah. But but I guess if you look at all of the diet options that are out there, carnivore would be the least food addiction or the most food addiction friendly. Okay, so now what about some... Excuse me, let me just mention one thing. Yes. It is, if you really want to fully enjoy complete food freedom and feel so empowered, like I could literally have a red velvet cupcake in the middle of my living room all day long and I couldn't care less. I wouldn't flinch because I'm not having fruits, right? I am training hard, so I regained that dopamine and D2 receptor loss that was damaged by years of severe sugar and carbohydrate addiction. Hmm. And because I'm eating also no dairy, so there's no addiction happening in my brain, which means when you don't eat any addictive food, you have zero craving and you have zero urges and zero temptations. It's such a powerful state of being that I feel like everybody has to at least experience it once in their lives. So what about the person who says, but how, how where am I going to get my dopamine? Like, like, uh, is it bo like, it's boring. I want to have food that makes me feel not addictive, but I don't know. What do you say to that? Or do you I, have that pleasure with eating still? Oh, oh my gosh. Absolutely. It's really enjoyable for me to eat a piece of steak. It's absolutely delicious. But the only reason I finally find it delicious is because Mm. I have no longer, uh, I, I haven't numbed my taste buds with a cookie or a cupcake or even rice the day before or the week before. Your palate changes and readjusts. And now all of a sudden, I cannot wait to dig into a ribeye or even a rotisserie chicken or a piece of salmon, you know? And you notice as you get better at this, even the leaner cuts of meat start tasting just as good. So even, even leaner ground turkey or leaner ground beef does the same thing. Whereas in the initial stages of getting over the addiction, you needed something really, really fatty to get some level of stimulation. Right. And how long did that palate take to change? So it takes around 10 days for all your taste buds to change, but it's not just the taste buds. It's actually the dopamine receptors. Once the more you heal the D2 receptors, dopamine receptors, really that I have discovered is the biggest dictator of how much you're going to start enjoying real food. Not only that, I now enjoy cleaning. It's something that I never in a million years thought 
good. You know, I enjoy like a little bit of social conversation with people, a walk in nature, like little things, movies that it, I would have had to watch the most, the craziest movie to feel something. And now it's like the the little things start to feel, you start getting high off of little things every single moment of every day. It's it's literally like a superhuman state of being. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And that's because, and that's a big, big thing of what I do with my clients. It's empowering them. And the way we do that is by treating the root cause of their addiction. It's very basic physiology. What is the root cause of addiction? Not enough dopamine. Not enough dopamine and not enough D2 receptors or dopamine receptors because you need the dopamine to connect to the D2 receptor for you to actually feel high, energetic, happy, etc. So that it's, it's, it's very simple. We know what raises it. There are so many things that raise it, but the biggest, most efficient, most effective way that I have found and the fastest way is exercise. The more intense your workouts, so dose and duration, actually, dose and duration of your workouts track closely to the amount of dopamine and D2 receptors. And so when I start working with a client, I get them to go all in with the workouts so that very quickly they start repairing the damage. So literally day by day, you see a difference because every day you do a workout, you wake up the next morning with higher dopamine levels and higher D2 receptors. And now that allows you to train even harder. So you wake up the day after with even higher dopamine and D2 receptors. So I can get them to have zero cravings in a very quick timeline compared to the two years that naturally you would have to wait, right, for the brain chemistry to to restore itself if you just do abstinence. I have to ask you, what's your oldest client? Because I can't imagine doing what you're saying by myself. Oh, I have, I, oh, it's, oh, let me tell you about this thing. I have so many, uh, actually, I, I, I tend to attract a lot more older women because I think the younger women still are trying their hardest to keep yeah. their addictions. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not until they hit their forties or fifties that they finally, finally understand that until you tackle the addiction, you're going to continue to yo-yo, which is why it seems like generally it's cute a little bit more to a, a middle-aged or above. The oldest client was is in my is in their 60s hmm. and they can all do it and the beautiful thing is that when you remove the plant foods all of a sudden you no longer have joint pain because remember plants have toxins plant cell defense chemicals they're inflammatory yeah. and so people think oh i'm i'm getting older it's like no it's that bowl of salad you just had yeah and it's, it's wild how all of the joint pain goes away so quickly on a pure carnivore diet Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and I'm excited to share with you our Sweet Sobriety course for August, the Neuroscience and Psychology of Procrastination, how to turn your procrastination pain into your personal power. A lot of what we have been led to believe about procrastination is wrong. It really has nothing to do with time management. While everybody may procrastinate, not everyone is a procrastinator. Research has found that as many as 20% of people are chronic procrastinators. Telling the chronic procrastinator to just do it is like saying to someone with addiction to just stop using their drug of choice. 
A perfect storm of procrastination occurs when an unpleasant task meets a person who's high in impulsivity and low in self-discipline. Most delayers expose a tendency for self-defeat. They can arrive at this point from either a negative state, fear of failure or perfectionism, or a positive one, the joy of temptation. These qualities have led researchers to call procrastination the quintessential breakdown of self-control and self-discipline. Procrastination is predominantly about our inability to self-regulate. You know what you ought to do and you're not able to bring yourself to do it. It's the gap between intention and action. We can rewire the brain to change these patterns and we can create neurodiscipline. This course will show you how. In this course, you will learn how to assess where you're at on the pure procrastination scale, the main avoidance archetypes or procrastination types, a tale of two brains, I will, I want, I won't, the role of craving in procrastination, the real story behind procrastination and emotional regulation, the five main mental hindrances, the pleasure pain principle, something over nothing, from self-sabotage to self-control to self-care, combating decision fatigue, how to retrain the brain's alarm system in order to restore higher cognitive functioning, strategies to help you expand your window of tolerance, mastering neurodiscipline, seven mind shift tips that trick the brain, and finally, how to move from reaction into response that allows for resolve in your procrastination challenges. This interactive seminar on the newest discoveries about procrastination, mood, and the emotional components of why we procrastinate is starting August 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will run for four weeks at that same time ending August 30th. What you get is hours of pre-recorded videos, downloadable resources, and suggested at-home practices, and four one-hour live support sessions with replay because they will be recorded. The cost is $50 US and you can sign up at www.sweetsobriety.ca. You'll probably wait for the last day. See you in August. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Okay, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my doctor's hat, and there's a couple of questions that um, when I think carnivore that I I, I can't get my head around. Um, so one of, one of them is cholesterol. So I know about HDL and LDL, the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, and that you know it's what we care more about is the triglycerides. But what happens? I do see that sometimes people's cholesterol, overall cholesterol, does go up on a carnivore diet. So why do we not need to worry about that? Because 75% of people who have a heart attack have low to normal levels of LDL cholesterol, which the American Heart Association likes to slap the label on and say it's the bad cholesterol. Uh, They're wrong, right? And we know that 93% of those who have a heart attack have abnormalities in their blood sugar. So is it the sugar or is it the fat that we're eating? I mean, I think it's very basic, you know, physiology that it's just wild to me that we're not teaching our medical doctors that. And it's the same thing because the American Medical Association falls prey to the influence of the industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, similar to how the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has fallen prey to the influence 
of the food companies, right? And they they provide the continuing medical education. So just like those food industries provide the continuing education credits to our dietitians, it's the same model. Well, and so okay. yeah. But do you see people, the clients of yours, come in and say, "Hey, since I've gone on carnivore, yes, my sugar is good, my insulin levels are good, but my cholesterol went up." Like, do you oh, see? Yeah. And and does that is there an alarm bell there, or do you think no, it's fine because it's com- yeah. Yeah, go ahead. It's completely fine. So a third of the people who do either keto or carnivore, so once you take out the carbs and you put in step fat in there, a third of the people will have elevation in their LDL cholesterol. Another third will say the same. Another third will drop. So it's very variable. It's not about the total number of LDL cholesterol. First of all, before you even, and and that's that's the thing that doctors need to understand because they're not being taught this information. When you get a client and their LDL cholesterol is elevated. Their the the first instinct of the doctor. Okay, let's just prescribe a statin. It's like yeah. hold on a second. <laughs> what you should do? That's I'm supposed to do that. Yeah. Right. What you're supposed to do in reality, if we were giving unbiased, objective education to our medical doctors, we should be teaching them that instead of doing that, you need to order a NMR or lipoprofile particle test, LPP test. Basically, it looks at the sub fractions of the LDL because you have different subtypes of LDL. You have the large fluffy ones, which we love. We have the intermediate density LDL and we have the small dense LDL, VLDL. It is only the tiny ones, the small dense LDL that if they're elevated, I am still not freaking out because it's not about them being elevated. It's only if they are elevated and they have high inflammation levels as measured by, let's say, a high sensitivity C-reactive protein test. So order the NMR test or the LPP test and order also their HSCRP levels to see general inflammation. And if you have elevated levels of both high inflammation and high levels of small dense LDL, then we need to look at what is causing the inflammation. Oftentimes, we just need to wait until they lose the weight and the inflammation goes away. <laughs> That's pretty uh, much it. Or like if they're smoking or drinking alcohol, you know, it's not this this statin. It's not the it's diet. Not, yeah, it's not, it's the not targeting their cost. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. okay. So, so that's the cholesterol thing. What about fiber? That's another big one. We need, so, the, we need the fiber. We do not need fiber. Again, we evolved without fiber in our environment. Not only that, fiber causes constipation. If you look at the science, at the actual scientific experiments conducted on fiber, every single one of them, the authors always conclude was like they're scratching their heads. It's like, why are our dietary guidelines still recommending fiber? The scientific evidence is very clear. You want to cure constipation, gas, bloating, and pain upon elimination, put your client on a zero fiber diet. I mean, it's such strong evidence. We have randomized control trials. We have the highest level of quality evidence, gold standard type studies, which are very rare in nutrition, by the way. We have them with fiber and they all show the pretty much the exact same thing. Fiber promotes rather than relieves constipation. And if you really want to eliminate constipation, by the way, I grew up on a plant-based diet in Lebanon, Mediterranean diet vegetables every day, rice and beans. And I was always constipated all my life until I finally, finally discovered carnivore. 
Okay, so if I can just ask you very bluntly then, how many times do you go, like in a day or in a week? Like, like That's the beauty, and that's the beauty of it. Let me ask you a question. Which species do, do you think would have had a survival advantage? The one who pooped six times a day or the one who pooped once every four days? Oh my who God. Who less vulnerable state? Well, obviously the one that poops every day, but if you're telling me, that, that, I mean, this is heresy to med- medicine. We're taught if the person isn't going at least once every three days, that's bad news. That's bad news. They're going to have uh, um, like um, polyps. They're going to have all sorts of uh, problems with their bowels. And you're saying you're saying that a normal carnivore diet is once every four days? Yes, once every three days, four days. Yes, that is not a painful experience. No, absolutely not. And that's the thing, because if it were painful, that means you have constipation, right? So, yeah. So again, going back, and before we even look into the studies, because the studies are very clear. No fiber is better than with fiber. The randomized control trials. I'm not talking about epidemiological studies, which make up 99% of our nutritional data, which are inherently flawed because they're using an inherently flawed collection tool, which is the food frequency questionnaire, which, by the way, I use for my master's thesis as well. And so we can talk as much as we want about that. It is useless. So <laughs> a species who would be crouched, you know, squatting, yeah six times a day trying to poop versus a species who would poop once very seamlessly, no pain, no bloating, none of that, once every four days. That species has a much stronger survival advantage over the other one that's basically wasting its minutes in a very vulnerable position. That's number one. Number two, we evolved in an environment where we literally had no plants, no fiber. We didn't eat that, right? And we were far more resilient. We were a stronger species. And now if we look at the people, I mean, every day I get clients who were like, yeah, I, I, I was trying to heal this thing and I everybody everybody that has ever come to me was either vegan or vegetarian they all try this first I'm always the last resort you know people can't wrap their heads around carnivore right you go for the first thing you want to do when you want to improve a health condition or get healthy you go to google right and what does everybody tell you plants fruits and vegetables and everybody tries that and they get worse right and then they come to me and find within like two weeks they reverse IBS, IBD, irritable bowel syndrome or disease, acne goes away, every rheumatoid arthritis, all of those things, ulcerative of colitis, you know, they all, everything goes away. And I have to say a disclaimer, I've had a carnivore pregnancy now. She, the, the, the lady I saw worked with me for one month to put her on a strict carnivore diet and we made her lose the weight. We want to make sure she's a low inflammatory state, lose any excess body fat. After spending seven to eight years in Canada, seeing every doctor in Canada doing IVF rounds, nothing worked. Within one month on a carnivore diet, I get an email a few days ago. She just wanted to tell me she's six months pregnant. It's a carnivore diet can make you more fertile, basically, is what you're saying. So true. Oh that's, my. Yeah. That's, I, I, I generally, a lot of people come to me for weight loss, and now I keep seeing the fertility thing happening. I have two women that reversed, three women, other than the lady who got pregnant, three other women reversed their menopause. <laughs> it's like two years no period 
the woman is in menopause. She comes to me just to lose weight. And he's like, you are not going to believe this. After a month or two of working together, two months that lady that I'm thinking about, you're not going to believe this. I just got my period. Wow. Wow. That's you know, so yeah, you got to be careful if you're going to start making babies. So if you don't want that, be careful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now what about the other big one? Cancer. Yeah. I always hear this thing, eat too much red meat. You're going to get cancer. The nitrates or whatever it is, that's it. Just the red meat. Uh, so what's your comment on that? Yeah. Do they know that celery has far more nitrates than any cut of meat? <laughs> no. I mean, I they literally, yeah. So like, and uh, because people are so afraid of the nitrates, now the bacon companies are, are like rolling out, you know, nitrate free on the label, but then you turn it around and then the ingredient list is like celery powder. <laughs> right. It's nitrate thing. And so, yeah. What is the number one thing that feeds cancer cells? What is the preferred fuel source of sugar? How can you actually detect the tumor? You look at their glucose metabolism, it lights up because it takes up all the glucose, right? All the sugar. This is why I've actually interviewed Dr. Thomas Seafried. He's following up the work of Dr. Otto Warburg in the 40s, doing all the research on how you can literally reverse cancer on a ketogenic diet. He's only doing keto. I didn't want to like push too much because I was just so happy that he came on my YouTube channel and gave me the interview. Um, but I would add, if he really wanted to maximize efficiency of his protocol, I would add removing all plant foods and all plant toxins as well to, to supercharge that. Pablo Kelly, everybody should look him up. He's worked with Thomas Seafried, had glioblastoma, one of the, it's like, it's like down to a science. You, you last two years max with the glioblastoma. He's been, he's been going on for seven, eight years uh, just because he's doing this kind of a diet. So basically what you're saying is you, you'd starve the cancer on a, on a carnivore diet yes. and you don't, not only do you starve the cancer, you throw the other, the other cells are thriving while the cancer is starving. This right. is the complete opposite of what traditional treatment does, right? Chemotherapy just destroys everything in your yes. body. And so, yeah, you kill off the cancer, but you still die at a young age. And do you know, I was just going to say, do you, that would mean you don't need to do intermittent fasting. Do you do intermittent fasting as part of your protocol? Naturally. I just, I'm not hungry, okay. you know? Right. Um, you naturally, I do. I wouldn't say force it. It's. I think when I first work with people, actually almost all, everybody has a serious sugar addiction, especially when they come to me. Yeah. I'm not telling, uh, at the beginning, I'm like, don't force yourself to fast. It's, it's just focus, force yourself to train hard. And that's going to repair the dopamine and D2 receptors. And then, you know, yeah. Okay. Now, can you still gain weight on a carnivore diet? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. And why? Carnivore diet is not a weight loss diet. It is a weight normalization diet. There are so many people who have tried everything to put on body fat because they're very, very underweight. And the only thing that works is eating a carnivore diet. And the hypothesis is that because it repairs the damaged villi and is repairs the integrity of your intestinal lining, and that leads to a better absorption of nutrients. But that's a hypothesis. Nobody has actually bothered to study a carnivore diet. We're too busy doing the bidding for Kellogg's and all of those food companies because they are, what, spending 11 times more to fund basic nutritional science compared to our government or the NIH. Okay. So you can gain weight, but can I assume that you can gain weight, but there's no overweight carnivore eater or is there? If you're doing a version of carnivore with sticks of butter and cheese, yeah, of course you're going to gain weight. Right. But that for me is not carnivore. Yeah. Okay. Now, another piece about food addiction that uh, we see not explainable, but it seems to be an, a, a clinical piece is volume addiction. Do you ever see people eating like 
too much steak, too much butter, too much, whatever it is, it's carnivore, but it's too much. Absolutely. Totally. It totally happens all the time. And and that's the thing, uh, as much as I'm happy that people are following carnivore diet, I think the, the next frontier is tackling sugar addiction because while I think carnivore diet, we don't have real data, so I can't tell you this with confidence, but I would assume that on a carnivore diet, people tend to have more benefit because it just removes so many of the cravings so they can stick with it. But, but still, a lot of them, they'll do two, three months, and then they fall off the wagon and they're off the wagon for a while. So the sugar addiction is treated in a very specific way, and you and I know that, right? There is very specific things you got to do with addiction. And just saying, I'm going to go carnivore, completely not paying attention to the fact that you have a seriously damaged dopamine and D2 receptor system, yeah. that doesn't vote for the future. And you still have pretty much like high failure rates on it. Well, so do you see people uh, come in and say, well, okay, I'm just going to eat steak and meat, but but they eat too much of it. Like, what do you do with them? Because they want that yeah, I, a feeling of volume. I put them on a treadmill and I raise their dopamine and D2 receptor. And once that goes back up to normal, I they see. will naturally not care for this hit of they get yeah from the stretch receptors yeah so if you don't mind can you give me a typical day in the life of a carnivore meal plan like how many ounces of protein like you know normally i think well maybe four ounces of protein per three meals a day but now if you're not having veggies is that does that translate to eight ounces of protein a day or like per meal or Give me a give me a couple of jet, typical days of what you yeah. consider good. Um, the beauty of repairing dopamine and D2 receptors with whichever way, maybe you can do it in cold plunges. Maybe you can do it with weight training. Maybe, you know, I, I think the best way to repair it very quickly is weight training plus running and can progressively increasing the intensity of that because that's going to be equal to the, how much dopamine you're building every day, right? So the beauty of repairing your dopamine is that you all of a sudden, if you have, if you have extra fat cells on your frame, all of a sudden you're not hungry. Like you'll eat one meal and it's like, that's it. Like you have zero hunger and that's the beauty of it. And then as you lose all the weight, all of a sudden now, because your leptin system also gets regulated as you lose all the weight, your body's not going to let you become underweight. So it raises your hunger. Once we basically get to a point where you have abs, you will naturally want to eat a little bit more just to maintain. And this is what happens every single time. But the trick is, is repairing the root cause, which is repairing the dopamine system in the brain. That's that's it. That's the magical cure. It's just that people don't want to hear it because it's because it can be painful. Because I'm not talking about having fun on the treadmill. La, la, la. It's like no. It's like I want to die right now. That's the intensity I'm talking about. Okay, but give me a, give me a typical meal. Like like I... yeah. So most people uh, end up, uh, if they're on maintenance, most people, and, and even, and if they're not working out, they end up with um, one to two pounds of ground beef a day. Okay. That, a that, day. That's the consensus, a day. That's raw, by the way, raw weight. Oh, right. So okay. one, yeah, so like one pound raw meat for lunch, one pound raw meat for dinner. You cook it, you're good. That's it. I do eggs and bacon in the morning. I get the low sodium bacon that specifically doesn't have added sugar on the ingredient list. 
And then I'll do usually one steak. Uh, if I'm training especially hard, I could add a couple of eggs to that steak. Or some days I'll do nothing but steak. I won't because a lot of times I'm not hungry in the morning. So I'll just have one ribeye in the morning, one ribeye at night. It you're changes talking, a lot. Some you're talking like, like a six ounce or an eight ounce ribeye per meal? I'm thinking more like nine or ten ounces of ribeye. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah this is all I'm eating, about. right? Yeah. yeah. And so in a lot of days, I'll just have one one ribeye that is like 12 ounces cooked ribeye meat. Yeah. And that'll be one meal of the day. And I'm, I'm good for the whole day, you know? But because I train hard and recently I've started really increasing my intensity more, I find that I need two meals. Okay. Wow. And just, I know we're not calorie counting, but what would the calorie count of something like that look oh, like? Oh, no. I count. I count. I make all my clients count. I think when you come from a background of having issues with food, you're, you, you cannot trust your instincts until I repair all the dopamine in your brain and you lose all the weight and there's no inflammation. Now, okay, we no longer need to count. But it depends. It really depends. Are we in maintenance? Like, are, are we, do we want to lose weight? So the calories adjust. I usually start off my clients with a 700 calorie deficit from the get-go. And I think that's another important thing. I think it really helps to drop the body fat because every extra fat cell on your frame is inflammatory. It's pumping out inflammatory molecule interferon or leukin-6, right? And that messes with your dopamine function. That messes with every single physiological system in your body. As you drop the weight, this is how I get people to get pregnant, you know? <laughs> It's not, you know, and, and you repair the, the, the addiction faster that way. So the, if it's a maintenance calorie count, then a maintenance, what would that be like? 1200 or 1800 or? Because all of my clients, I make sure they're training hard. They rarely, yeah, they rarely go below 1700 calories because they're training hard. And that's on a, that's by, that's also uh, with a caloric deficit. So they don't eat less than 1700 calories. And on top of that, they're actually burning 1700 calorie deficit per day because we're putting them in a weight loss diet. Yes. Most of them. I've had a few here and there that wanted to gain weight, which by the way, we were able to do that very easily as well with on carnivore. And I create YouTube videos about anything that I am interested in at the moment. And because I'm a science geek, <laughs> I wow. tend to create a lot about what I eat, which is a carnivore diet. My hubby is also on a carnivore diet. I create a lot of things like that, but I also create lifestyle, fashion, beauty, but they're very like, maybe right at the moment, it's probably out of the 402 YouTube videos I have, it's probably like 10 lifestyle videos so far. Okay. For me, it's about, it is about, following my passions and being my own boss and, you know, creating the reality that I want to live in. It's not about, oh, I am a carnivore doctor and I will only, you know, yeah. create things about it. Because honestly, a lot of the work with my clients extends far beyond their diet. It's about what are your limiting beliefs? Why aren't you following your dream, your passion? Because if you have those things, I don't care how many great diets I give you, you're not listening to your gut. You're not like, this is the best way to get dopamine, follow your dreams. And it's just the limiting beliefs that we have. And so I, I, I'm more of a therapist than I am a dietitian, you know? Yeah. Okay. So if I were to ask you what's next for you, I think you've just described it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I rap. <laughs> by the way. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're uh, going to start. Uh, I, I put out a few songs, but uh, 
I haven't filmed uh, a professional, uh, you know, music video yet. So in the next, within the next month or two, you're going to start seeing really, really high quality music videos, professionally recorded rap songs on a consistent basis. Also on my YouTube channel, in addition to the coaching business, because again, I want my coaching business to run itself. And I want, I feel like I climbed the top of this mountain and I want another challenge. And it's really my dream to be a performer. I'm, I'm a natural born performer if i can ask you please do a wrap on food addiction and then i will happily post that everywhere one last question it's our signature yeah. question that we ask everybody in closing if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar sugar addiction or maybe carnivore diet um what would it be a younger version yourself it's like you're swimming uphill if you're continuously dabbling in a drug that is far more addictive than heroin it'll never you'll you, you know you'll never be able to moderate i mean yes maybe but after an intense rehab program right and even then you will still have to after you consume that addictive food you will still have to have some cravings for a few days or a few weeks after so like why even why even go there that's probably the thing that I would, I wish I knew back when I was in my 20s. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sarah. That was a fascinating conversation. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I had a blast. And thank you also for coming over to my channel. We filmed that and it went live and people are loving it. So uh, I, yeah, I definitely hope we can collaborate on a lot more in the future. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>